Lord, we want to commit this time to you. Pray for your spirit to move and help us to see Christ lifted up. That um, You've called us, all of us, to follow you. And that means to allow Christ to form us as we conform our life to Christ. Thank you. Commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, welcome. We are back to our journey series. Um, let me test it. Good. And really, journey series is about our church vision. All right. And this year, our vision is on the, the third pillar, which is impacting the community and beyond for Christ. So what does that mean? And so we unpacked it over three series. Uh, just a quick recap. The theme for this year, we call it Missio Day, uh, the mission of God. So what is the mission of God? When you think about mission of God, what, what comes to your mind? Anyone? Sorry, louder. Great commission, good. Anything else? How about this side? What comes to mind when you think of the mission of God, Miss Your Day? Huh? What, what, what? Building His kingdom, good. Reconciliation, good. What else? The Bible, evangelism. So we think of Missio Day is a big concept. Okay, so there's a way to break it down. One view of it, first is that missions covers evangelism, discipleship, church planting, all this hardcore stuff. And then the bigger mission of God, what the church does for the world, reconciliation, poverty, social justice, building wells. And then the big one, the Missio Day, which is, includes everything plus what God does for us. See, the rest of it is what we can do, right? As a church, as an individual. But Missio Day includes what God does for us. That is in sending His Son to complete the mission, uh, sending the Holy Spirit to build the church. And so we understand Missio Day. Um, of course, we want to know the church vision. The first is to understand what it means. So in January, we did cover this. I know nobody remembers. But I tried to cover the salient points of each uh, each series, although we talk, every series we talk four talks, but usually the first talk is a, a rah-rah talk, right? Some, some famous people will be up here sharing, and then the second talk is, you know, what our church does. And then the last one is me, because I try to put everything together. So, the first talk we talk about, what is God doing? And we realize in the culture mandate, God says, you know, go multiply, uh, fill the world. It is filling God's creation with people made in His image. Essentially, the whole creation of God is covered with this image. And then we fell into sin. Christ came to form the new humanity. The hum- new humanity is the church. So the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. It's really to fill God's creation with people who are remade in His image through the gospel. So essentially, God is only doing one thing through the ages, redeeming His creation, filling it, filling it with His image and His glory. And so if God is only doing one thing, I think we ought to respond to that one thing that He is doing. In the second series in July, talk about impacting the community. To impact our community, our society, we need to understand culture. And how do we move from an anthropocentric culture to a theocentric culture? Moving from a human-centric world to a God-centric world. So we show you this model, I think, from David Platt. Essentially, if you have a negative view of culture, this culture is bad, you know. I'm going to fight it, so we combat. We see certain things we don't like, we fight against it. Or we have the passive view. We just check out, say the culture is bad and so I want nothing to do with it. I just retreat to church, deal with spiritual things. And then on the right bottom corner is, well, the culture is good, let's just conform. And the last one is uh, to transform. Culture is good, 
or rather culture is a good thing, but we want to transform the world's culture with the gospel. So using this model, we then say that, you know, really, the, the Missio Day is about what we do in our daily lives affecting the culture or being conformed by the culture. So we dealt with workplace, and we say all work is worship. You know, if what we do for God is only restricted to what we do in this, this, within these four walls, then I think it's quite pathetic. If only I, the full-time pastor, gets to do God's will, I think that's terrible. It means the rest of us, you know, every, what we do on, from Monday to Saturday, there's no eternal impact. Only when you come here on Sunday, you attend prayer meetings, you know, attend worship, then it's meaningful. Then that will be a terrible world, isn't it? But no, the way God looks at it, because of His Missio Day, everything we do for the sake of the Lord uh, is meaningful. And so we talk about, specifically talk about work. And also why in September we dealt with work as Missio Day. Bill Bright, who founded Krampus Crusade, and Lauren Cunningham, founded YWAM. In 1975, they came out with this model, Seven Spheres of Influence of the Culture. If you want to influence the culture, these are the fears that we need to have Christians to influence. Because these are the spheres that will influence our culture and the culture influence people. And then we say sin separates us from God and separates humans from humans, right? So we, again in July, we, we look at what separates, what are the barriers, and we talk about language, socioeconomic, religion, age, ethnicity. And with this model, we begin to evaluate what about QBC, you know, what we are doing, what are the areas of ministries we, are, we want to reach out to. And so this is a recap of January and July. The salient point is what is God doing? God is doing one thing and we want to do what He's doing. Second is the culture. How do we view culture? Do we escape from it? Do we conform to it? Or do we try to transform it? Because culture is, is important. So today we want to talk about you know, impacting the community and beyond what God is doing. And so in the January series, I actually showed this model by Ralph Winter, who is a, a state sp- spokesperson for World Missions. He basically divides redemptive history into 10 epochs, 10 different times. So the top part is what we find in the Bible. First, God chooses an individual, Abraham, to, through whom the whole, all nations will be blessed. And then um, Abraham's descendant, Israel, and eventually the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And so in each um, time history, what God was doing and how his redemptive plan unfolded. And then it came to, after the New Testament ended, first period is the Roman period. We found that in this time, there, were great perse- there was great persecution. Christians were being persecuted by Romans until 312, when Emperor Constantine became a Christian. So suddenly, Christianity became an official state religion. Suddenly, all the persecution stopped. So many people wanted to be Christians, you know, whether they are born again or not. And so there are some problems. Because everybody wanted to be Christians, uh, but many of them were not born again. So we have different values and worldviews that seeped into the church. But the good thing was because it was controlled, we had all those uh, ecumenical meetings. We came up with the creeds and doctrines because before that, there was no official like state religion or anybody controlling it. So the Christians just believed what they had, the Bible, the scripts that they have, they, what they read. But then now they have organized religion. So we begin to sit down and say, okay, what is the right doctrine? What do we believe about Christ? The duality of Christ, right? Where he's 100% man, 100% God. What do we believe about God, Trinity? So it is in this time that all the good stuff came out. Yeah, and what was good also, the Romans began to evangelize their northern neighbors, the Gothic barbarians. 
which is where Germany is now. So by 410, when the barbarians came down and took Rome, most of them were already Christian, even though it was a bit a warped version of Christianity, but they had basic values. And so they did not, you know, rob the church and kill a lot of people because of their worldview. But the barbarians, uh, they didn't really do a good job in, in the missions. They didn't share to the Vikings. So by the time the Vikings came down, it was a whole different story. Churches were filled with treasures, gold, silver, and there were no guards, no soldiers, because nobody robbed the church. So these Vikings did a raid. They would come down and raid the, raid the churches, and um, terrible things happened. They grabbed women, kidnapped them as their slaves, or married them. But strangely, it's because of all these slaves and women who were Christian, that through them, the gospel was shared with the northern Vikings. So, so much so that by 1200, no king in Europe could be a king without acknowledging that he's a Christian. See, so you see how Christianity grew from one sect in Palestine to a worldwide religion, at least covering the whole of Europe by the end of 1200. But that is when we entered the Dark Ages, right? Um, we left. Uh, the, the church practices were not according to Scripture. And at that time, there was only one church, the universal church called the Catholic Church based in Rome. So we call it the Roman Catholic Church. So Rome, okay, Ro the Roman Church or the Catholic Church, um, a lot of the practices were not according to Scripture. It was during this time that because of political reasons, they started the Crusades. And that is when the fissure between Muslim and Christianity began to happen. Before that, before the Crusades, if you start to look at history, you know, Muslims viewed Christians uh, in a good light. But after those Crusades, uh, everything changed. So it was during these 400 years. But God was still working. In 1517, he raised Martin Luther, the German monk, who started the Reformation. He protested against Rome. And so we are all known as Protestants, okay? Whether you're Baptist or you're uh, Methodist or Presbyterian, we're all part of this Protestant because we protested against Rome. And we left Rome, and that's when we begin the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches. So, we begin to see the last 400 years, from 1600 to 2000. The first 200 years, the Protestant churches didn't do a lot of missions. The Catholic churches continued to send Jesuit priests all over the world. But for Protestants, uh, we were concerned about doctrine. We had people like Zwigli, uh, Calvin, who came up, God raised them, and they began to define what do we actually believe. What are we practicing that is not according to Scripture? And so we begin to have our de denominations, Presbyterians and Lutherans and what have you. And I always say, right, uh, you know, as Baptists, Presbyterians used to burn us as a stake because we believe we need more water to be baptized. Then my friend said, uh, Pres Presbyterian didn't exist at the time. It was probably the Anglicans. Blame the Church of England. But anyway, the point was, uh, this was the time where all the denominations started to happen. And then finally, we reached the 17th century or 18th century, sorry, the 18th century, and God started to raise missionaries through the Protestant movement. And that is where I'd like to talk about uh, in our, our talk today. That's my focus. The first part I've been through actually in the January. So the last 400 years, the first wave of mission work within the Protestant movement was from a Baptist. William Carey was a Baptist. At a meeting of a Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood up to argue for the value of overseas missions. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. 
And that young minister was, of course, William Carey. He was raised in an obscure rural village in England, became a cobbler apprentice, meaning uh, learning how to be a cobbler, and he had little education. But after his conversion, he bought himself a New Testament Bible and grammar and began to teach himself Greek. I mean, for the seminarians among us, you know, we study full-time Greek, we really find it difficult. But this guy is working as a cobbler and studying Greek. And after he finished it, it was as if not enough, he went to learn Hebrew and Latin all by himself while he was working, trying to support the family. And he was really poor. He couldn't even afford to when, uh, when his children came along. And at the same time, he was studying Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And he said, you know, I can plod, P-L-O-D, I can plod, I can persevere to any definite pursuit. See, if there's anything good about me, is that I can work hard. And he plodded on. And after that, he became a Baptist preacher. Now, Kerry was impressed by the early Moravian missionaries. And he was increasingly dismayed by the fellow Protestant who lacked any interest in missions. So he wrote an article. He argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. He said, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. See, how can we sit here in in ease when so many people are dying out there without the gospel? So in 1792, he started a missionary society. And the first sermon he preached in that, that meeting was titled, Expect Great Things from God and Attempt Great Things from God, for God. A year later after this sermon, his family and another missionary, John Thomas, who was a surgeon, left for India. So in this first way of Protestant missionary movement, it was characterized by church planting. They go to this foreign country, major city, they plant churches. They translate the Bible into a native language. And they focus on social reforms, dealing with issues of morality and social justice. At the time, the missionaries were sent out by denominations because uh, you know, this is right after Reformation where, where we burn each other alive for the amount of water we use. So denominations, a divide was very important to them. So they didn't cooperate, they just sent their own missionaries. So in the first wave of missionary movement was characterized by this. Kerry in India um, put a lot of pressure to stop the custom of burning widows alive when their husband died. And also the practice of drowning female babies because they wanted males. So they didn't just share the gospel, they dealt with social ills. Another person, David Livingstone, was impacted by this movement. He went to Africa, and there he was known for helping eliminate eliminate slave trade in Africa. The early China missionaries, they went there and tried to stop the painful binding of women's feet in childhood. So you see, they didn't just share the gospel, they dealt with social reforms. They dealt with schools, hospitals, This was their focus. So this was the first wave of missionary movement. Second wave, about 100 years later, a man called Hudson Taylor. Um, 1853, at the age of 21, he headed off to China. At the time, China as a country was just coming into Christian West's consciousness. There are only a few dozen missionaries there. But 50 years later, when Hudson Taylor died, China was viewed as one of the most fertile and challenging mission fields, and every year thousands of volunteers would go there to be missionaries. So in China, 
he was not, Hudson Taylor was not very happy with most of the missionaries he saw. He believed that they were worldly. They spent too much time with English businessmen and diplomats who needed their services as translators. Instead, he wanted the Christian faith to be taken into the interior of China, the inland. And so within months of arriving, you know, even though he was not fluent in Chinese, um, together with one other co-worker, they took the Bibles and some tracts and set sail in the Huangpu River to go into the interior of China. And you know, this was within months of learning Chinese. Right? For us, we learn Chinese from, from uh, what, how many years old to, to however many years old we study, right? And yet we find it so difficult. I was trying to convince one of my child to attend Chinese worship this today and I had such a difficult time, you know. Where did I go wrong? Hmm, I need some time to reflect. Anyway, by 1861, you know, he was really ill. So he went back to England, a broken man. He was discouraged, but he continued translating the Bible. He learned uh, how to be a midwife so that he can use this skill in the field. He would continue to work hard and raise missionaries. And he was very troubled that the people in England seemed to have little interest in China. So he wrote another article and he scolded the people. He said, Can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms while these multitudes in China are perishing? Perishing for the lack of knowledge, for the lack of the knowledge which England possesses so richly. So he started an organization to evangelize the interior of China, China Inland Mission, CIM, which is today known as OMF, which is where our deacon, Homan, and family are, have joined and will be leaving us uh, within a few weeks. So he started OMF or CIM at the time, and he asked for 24 missionaries. Because he identified 11 inner provinces plus Mongolia, and says, if only I can send two missionaries to each of them, 24, I can gain China for God. Did you hear that? The audacity of that statement. I mean, China is like, I don't know how many, I'm, I'm sure there are not billions at the time, but at least a few hundred millions and he says he believes with 24 missionaries, he can gain the whole of China. And this gives us an insight of people like Hassan Taylor. You know, he had depression, okay? He was very depressed. He once had this burden for Chinese souls, but he was thinking, is it right when all the missionaries are all situated in major cities and he's just trying to send two missionaries into the inland without any protection or help? So he was terribly, terribly depressed. One of his friends invited him to a beach resort or his house by the beach. Okay, to spend some time. So he went there and he said his gloom was lifted. He said, there the Lord conquered my unbelief. I surrendered myself to God for this service. I told him that all responsibility as to the issues and consequences must rest with God. That as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him. He believed with 24 missionaries, he wanted to gain the whole of China for God. And he says, if I have a thousand pounds, China should have it all. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we have too much of Him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? And we notice, you know, people like William Carey, Hudson Taylor, I mean, they are not super spiritual. In many ways, they struggle in many issues. And he had depression. But you know, they understood the heartbeat of God more than most of us can grasp. And he responded. The second missionary wave between this period is characterized by planting indigenous churches in areas where there's no gospel. Instead of the major cities, they went 
Inland. And it was this time that CIM, SIM, AIM came about. SIM, Sudan Inland Mission. Last week, the speaker is the national head for SIM. Of course, now it's not Sudan Inland Mission. Sudan sounds more hardcore, right? Now they are doing more stuff, so they change it to serving in missions. AIM is Africa in Inland Missions. And the pattern was they reached the unevangelized people group. See, the first wave was denominations. The second wave was cross-denominations. They didn't really bother about the denominational divide. They just wanted to reach unreached people. And then the third wave. The third wave really is based in America. Dick Hillis, one of the powerhouse five, he says, no one has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has at least heard it once. He says, what's the point of sharing the gospel again and again to people who have heard it so many times when there's so many who have not heard it once? Now, who is the powerhouse five? There's five of them. They went on to start different organizations. Um, they got used. Dawson, Trotman, Mitchell, and Morgan were close friends. At the time, they were serving American servicemen right after the war, World War II. And then after the war, they, they shifted to use. Use in LA, then California, and then use of the world. They were later joined by uh, Hillis and Pierce, who later went on to found World Vision. And there, they started YFC, Youth for Christ. So these five of them, plus a few more people, came together to reach the Youth for Christ. They gathered for prayer every day. There's this opposite Biola, which is a Bible Institute of LA. There's a hotel. Every Tuesday at 5 o'clock in the morning, they gathered at the roof to pray. And of course, on the roof, there was this elevator shaft, a power generator to, to power the elevator. And so Dawes or Dawson Trotman called it the powerhouse, the power of electricity and power of prayer. This place was the powerhouse for the lift and also the powerhouse for their world movements that God would use them. So they have been called the powerhouse five. Now what took them from insignificance to the history books of missions? The answer is simple. They have a personal passion for Christ that translated to a burning passion to give others the same hope they have found. They were not very different from us, but they had a passion for Christ and they wanted to give the same passion to others. Their passion for Christ bound them together and gave them the audacity to believe if they prayed without ceasing and were obedient unto death, they could win the world for Christ. The daughter of Bob Pierce, who now runs World Vision, says, they believe that in the words of the Reverend Andrew Murray, without prayer, there's no power for the church to conquer the world. And so the third missionary movement, the wave, is marked by parachurch patterns. Some said that it's this period that the church was impotent. We we're not doing what we were supposed to do. So God called individuals out to form all these various parachurch organizations. Trotman started Navigators, Bob Pierce started World Vision, and the rest. This picture um, is a very early meeting of the leadership of YFC. This here is Robert Evans who started GEM, uh, Greater European Missions. This here, who is this? Oh, this is Morken, the earlier one of the powerhouse five. This person started one of the university in New York and also started Radio Broadcast of New York. This guy started is Bob Pierce who started World Vision. And of course, this tall guy is Billy Graham. 
And so what's interesting about this picture is this. At this time when the picture was taken, they were already seasoned prayer warriors who had planted their ministries in faith. Their relationships had been forged together in tears and prayer at the foot of the cross. And over the next five years, they will see God launch them into ministries that are still changing the world today. Every one of these young men went on to do something significant. They were all in their 20s. They all went on to do something significant with their lives. And what stirs our hearts is that, you know, when we look at this picture, not one of them knew at this time what God was about to do. They were just young men who gave their lives to serve Christ, to reach a spiritually lost and dying world. And they had no clue of how to do it. What Pierre says, most people think what the gospel needs is more clever, skilled people when it needs. It's more people who are willing to bleed, suffer, and die in a passion to see people come to Christ. Now this was happening all in Europe, in America. Now what's happening in Asia? We don't have seem to have any significant missionaries, but it does not mean that God was not doing anything. The Asian church was a young church, remember? The gospel was brought in first by the first movement by William Carey and then really significantly by Hudson Taylor. But God was still working. This person, John Sung, who came to Singapore in about the mid, just before and after World War II, late 30s and early 40s. Um, my church... On the beginning of my spiritual life, is also greatly impacted by him because um, the church that I went to, all the leaders were converted during his, his time. Anyway, he was born in 1901 in Futian to a home of a pastor. In 1920, he went to America to study. Within five years, he got his undergraduate, his graduate, and his postgraduate. I mean, five years. Most of us, we take five years, we can't even finish our undergraduate, right? He not only finished his, 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 his bachelor's, his master's, and his doctoral degree, he even had time to go to seminary. But he went to Union Seminary, which was a liberal seminary at the time, okay? And so it brought him to a crisis of his life. Union had abandoned the clear teachings of Scripture and subscribed to the idea that God is dead. And so John Sogg began to doubt everything he was taught because he, was, he grew up in a family of a pastor. It troubled him. He prayed and studied the Bible looking for answers. And then one night his soul was transformed. He began to weep and shout for joy. He raced out of his room to tell his teachers and fellow students. He rebuked them for what they believed. And then the next thing he knew, he was locked up in an asylum for being insane. See, in the eyes of those people, this sudden transformation must mean that he, 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 he gone insane. So he was locked up for 193 days. In the 193 days, the only thing he had was the Bible and a pencil. And so he said in that 193 days, he read the Bible cover to cover 40 times. And later, he said that this was his real theological training. He was released. He went back to China on the ship. He threw overboard all his diplomas and certificates, keeping only his doctorate because he wanted to honor his father. From that moment on, his life was dedicated to winning souls. It's interesting. God gave him a vision and told him he only had 12 years to serve. He didn't understand why, so he told a friend to keep it a secret. And truly, in the 12 years, God used him tremendously. He became known as the Wesley of China, the Apostle of China, and probably the greatest preacher of this century. Many of our Chinese Christian heritage uh, was impacted by him. 
But this was a straight stamp article about how people were crying and saying farewell to him. So while we think that there seems to be no significant missionaries during this time period, you know, God is still working. And I think the 21st century is a century for Asians. We've already seen how South Korea has become the world's um, sending, missionary-sending country. You see, China, even Christians in China have this vision to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. And you know, from China back to Jerusalem, you know the route? It goes through all the stand countries. What stand countries? Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, all the stand countries which is very hard ground for the gospel. But that's exactly where they want to bring the gospel to. So I do believe that God continues to work wave after wave after wave because God is only doing one thing in time. That's to redeem His creation to Himself. The only question is, are we part of that? So the modern missionary has two mottos. The first is called finishing the task. They believe for Jesus to come back, we need to finish the task. So we have organizations like Wycliffe, New Tribes Mission, Frontiers, Pioneers. They go into tribal areas to share the gospel. They list down all the tribes which have no written language, no gospel. They're going to learn the language, convert it into a written form so they can translate the Bible and bring it there because they want to finish the task. And a few of my good friends are involved in such work to finish the task. The other motto came out from Lausanne. The missionary conference, John Stott and Billy Graham, they, they termed this whole gospel, whole church, whole world which is our, really, in January, our, our theme was based on this. What do by whole gospel, whole church, whole world? To reach the whole world, we need the whole church, not just people like me, full-time people, but every one of us. And so the emphasis is shifted to what we do in our workplaces, at our homes, in our communities. But the whole church, the whole gospel is not just to share Christ, but how do we deal with social justice issues? How do we deal with poverty? Issues that arises in our, the daily needs of people. So today, you know, we all have different understanding or hearts when it comes to mission. We have different bands. Some like the hardcore stuff, you know, go where no, none has gone before, Star Trek. But, um, or the whole gospel doing, deal with poor people. We all have different bands, but it comes out of this, these two mottos. We see that we talked a lot about, in this year, about each one of us that we have a role to play. But there is also still a role for missionaries, an important role. Some that remain in our own culture, some that do cross-culture. Cross-culture should be, could be our doorstep missions. And then we have overseas missions. So next week, uh, we have an interesting session. Usually one session that's more practical, right? So that you're not bored to death. Next week, it'll be a short time. Uh, I think one of the CMC members will share a bit. And then we'll break up into the different rooms where you get to see um, every different mission point someone will be sharing. Not only mission points, we have some people sharing about doorstep missions, what we are doing. And also, our Pastor David will also have a session on, you know, about missionaries, what do they go through? Because we want to understand and we want to support. So it's, it's important for us to understand what they go through. So next week, that is what you have in store. I encourage you all to come. Can we look at foreign missions? Well, there's a lot of talk about each of us. You know, not all of us are called, right? But still, foreign missions is biblical and irreplaceable. When you look at Jesus and his 12 disciples, you know, every one of them, did not die in Jerusalem, except maybe James, because he was chopped off his head. Every one of them died somewhere, either in England, in Russia, some even in Scotland, in North Africa, because they saw there is the imperative of bringing the gospel to a culture that was different from theirs. Look at Paul, his three missionary trips. Can you imagine if Paul didn't get a Macedonian call? 
You know, his initial focus was in Asia, right? He wanted to go in Asia, but somehow God stopped him and called the Macedonian call. Macedonian call was across into Europe. If Paul didn't receive that call, probably Europe will not be evangelized. Maybe China first, okay, who knows? But what I mean is, so every little decision we make is significant, right? He decided to respond to the Macedonian call. The gospel got preached into Europe and then we have all of history that we know today. So we see that from the Bible that all these believers, when they have the gospel, they realize they need to cross culture and not just stay where they're comfortable. Now, After saying all this, we talk about QBC's direction, right? Um, part of this journey series is understand our core values, understand our missions, what it means to us and We've decided that to go in this direction to support our own missionaries because we see how God is raising uh, people within us. And we hope that eventually where they go, those places will become our mission points. What that looks like, we don't know. How do we raise the money, which is a lot of money, we don't know also, okay? But we have to pray. So we decide that we are going to partner with agencies because some churches will send their own missionaries, okay, and they're fully in control of what they do. But for us, we believe that different agencies have more experience and expertise. We want to journey and support their ministries in prayer and also financially. Then what about the rest of us? You know, we are not called to be missionaries. We can pray, we can give. Then, then what? No, what else? Short-term trips. As I shared, shared with you, we have different mission points. Next week, we will share. And I think in your hand, you have a handout, right, of all the mission trips next year. We want to encourage you to go as a family, as a DG, or just individually. Why? Because many times when we go for such mission trips, we are not trying to have uh, mission tourism, just go there and do something and have fun. And we understand that we need to go there and support some work there so that they can continue. But I think God uses such trips to also help us understand His heart. Because we leave our environment that we are comfortable, we go to somewhere that is foreign, and we begin to see, hey, God is also working. And sometimes in very similar ways, and sometimes you see how people respond to their faith and we wonder, why am, not, am I not responding to God the same way? I remember, you know, when I did my grad trip, I uh, had a lot of plans, but eventually I decided to do a mission trip for a month. I was praying to God whether I should break my bond and go to full-time because I had the burden. Long and short story, God just basically told me I need to go back to work. So I did. But what I gained from that trip, you know, I saw a lot of those ladies who became Christians there in this little island. They were about my age, you know, early 20s, mid-20s. But when they became Christians, they experienced such joy and freedom. You can see their lives just change. And I asked myself, you know, do I have the same joy of following Christ? You know, do I, God is so real to them, but what about me? Another trip, I don't know, is it my honeymoon trip or something, but I shared this story with you before, you know, went to Northern Thailand and there was this uh, hill, right? At the bottom of the hill was a village, on top of the hill was another village. The one on top was a Christian village. And they were really poor. But the one on the bottom of the hill was very rich. They had fat pigs and dogs and fat cats even. So I was thinking, is it because the Christians are very lazy? And that's why they are so poor, right? Cannot be, the location is so close, but why are they so rich and you so poor? And then I found out, no, it's because there used to be only one village, which is the one down the hill because it's closer to the water source. But when they became Christians, their families kicked them out of the house. So they have no choice but to go up a hill and start a new village. And so because all the good lands have been taken up, you know, that's all they could afford. And then I saw the children, you know, they played together. No, you know children, no matter what village you come from, they play together. And they are actually same family, they are cousins, you know. 
And you see the group of kids playing together and some, they have modern amenities and comfortable stuff. And the other is so poor, you know, they wear tattered clothes. In my heart, I think, how is this fair? They're kids. Sim- they, they, they are so different simply because their parents have made a decision to follow Christ. How is this fair? But you know, to them, they didn't ask this question about fairness. Because to them, following Christ means this. And hence, I learned that I always ask, what about my rights? You know, rights to a comfortable life, rights to pursue my own dreams and ambitions, rights to what I want to do. But sometimes following Christ means giving our rights to Christ. It means we don't ask those questions about my rights. It means like those kids who takes it for granted that if I'm a Christian, if I come from a Christian family, this means I, I have to accept a standard, lower standard of living. I went to Jordan. All these trips, I was still working, okay, so I could afford all this flying around. I went to Jordan and, uh, you know, we received an email from an Arab pastor. He says, there are four ladies from China who sit in my congregation every week and we don't understand what they're saying and they don't understand what we're saying. But every week, they're there. So can you come and see, uh, see them because they say they know you, this, this pastor. So my pastor went, I followed him. Twelve months later, we went. Instead of four ladies, we saw 300 ladies. So where did they come from? You know, are they all Christians? But no, they're all converted by these four ladies. And it amazed me because, uh, you know, they couldn't understand Arabic. But every week, they were there for worship. And at the time, I was thinking, wow, every Saturday, sleep so late, work so hard. Sunday morning, sometimes you want to skip church. Sometimes you look at the preacher and say, oh, this preacher. <laughs> you know? And these people, they don't even understand what is being preached. They don't understand what is being sung. And yet, every week, they want to be in the presence of God in the fellowship of the saints. I tell you, when I saw that, so you see, so you see, when we follow Christ, what does it mean to you? See, it's not that all of us are called to be missionaries, to go to somewhere where life is tough, you know, and we share gospel with people that we don't know. The truth is, this is what it means to be a Christian, to, to, that God calls each of us to follow Him. In the Next Gen Center, we try to have this practice of every age group to go out for mission trips. You know, I saw last week, last, this year, because Pastor Elaine brought this group, I went to send them off. There are 33 of them. Uh, I think Andrew is there, you know, 70 over years old, and then we have kids. Don't know how many years old. And I tell you, to be honest, after they left, I talked to Peng Kiong, I said, wow, what if the kids get lost, you know? So many of them running around. How do you know which is mine and which is the locals? <laughs> but they did it. Bonhoeffer, um, basically he's a German Christian. He, Hitler wanted to kill him because he spoke out against Hitler. He escaped to America. But in America, he says, how can I escape to America and live like that when my fellow countrymen are suffering? I lose my right to be a Christian witness. So he decided to go back. And he went back, he was arrested and eventually executed. He said this, when Christ calls a man... He bids him, come and die. The call to missions is a natural outworking of discipleship. Not all of us will go to a foreign land to share the gospel. All of us are called to follow Christ and carry the cross. The bottom line of discipleship then is the willingness to pay the price. We set aside our personal agendas. It's to accept that, it's to accept God's rule. It's entering God's service. 
living on God's terms, engaging in God's mission. And far from being risk-free and cost-free, Christianity requires disciples to walk by faith and give up all values and priorities of this world. It's a high calling to follow Christ. We say, why do we do that? Not because, you know, we have martyrdom syndrome, but because Christ did it for us first. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we are compelled by the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels us to bear the cross. So we call it Christoformity. It's your life formed by Christ. It's your life conformed to the cross. Has your life been Christoformed? Very early in my Christian life, I read about John G. Payton and it really inspires me. He wanted to go to those tribal missions and he said there's this particular older Christian gentleman who would always dissuade him. And at the end of it, he would always tell him, Cannibals! The cannibals will eat you! So every time, Peyton would just keep quiet. But after a while, he said he could not take it anymore. And so one time he replied, he said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in age by now. And soon you'll be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day of my resurrection, my body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of a risen Saviour. Missions is a natural outworking of discipleship. Jesus says, unless a kernel of seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a seed, but when it dies, it bears much fruit. Not all of us need to go overseas to some strange places, but all of us need to be crystal formed. Our modern life is self-oriented, but when we orient it towards Christ, you begin to realize God uses you to impact different people, young people, old people, using hospitality, using your work. And in many different ways, you begin to make many little impacts. And at the end of the day, that is how the Missio Day will be accomplished. So I ask, and I leave you with this question, is your life, has your life been crystal formed? Formed by the cross? Because Christ first loved us. He calls us come and die. This is the list of mission trips I want you all to discuss in the groups for next year. Maybe it's something you all want to do together as a family or as a, a DG or individual. And also, next week, if you want to know more, you know, I'll give you details next week. There are different rooms where you can go and uh, listen to what they will do. And of course, there are also other rooms for um, local, some of the local work we are doing and Pastor David. Um, these are some questions. Maybe you can share in your groups. You know, over this, all this, I want to say this year, but you probably forget. But you no, know, we talk about Missio Day. What struck you? Or maybe share about a time you've been on a mission trip, what it's like, or if you've never been, why? And then maybe as a group, what you can do. Okay?